So the reason that we record the audio is because we have a podcast and every week's session is recorded along with a bunch of other free podcast sessions on different topics. So you have so much you can do in July. And even though we're not going to be here, you can listen to my soothing, melodious voice all you want. No, but there is, there's hours and hours and hours, hundreds of hours of free podcast resources. So go on discipledojo.org and click on the link at the top that says spiritual training and then click on podcast. Um, there is also on the page, this is what it looks like. And if you click on the top spiritual training video teaching, there's a, vi- a video series that we've done. Uh, you can see the video of each week here. Our, but then there's also video teaching courses on different things. So we've got a whole course on how to interpret the Bible. We've got a course on forming a thoughtful Christian sexual ethic. That's a really fun one. We get into the Song of Songs and people blush and it's exciting. We've got the Bible and science where we talk about creation, evolution, all that stuff that uh, Christians get up in arms about. And then we have uh, one called Revelation, a guided tour of the apocalypse. And we walk through chapter by chapter the book of Revelation. And we demystify what has become a very weird book to a lot of people. But ironically, the book that was written to make things clear to first century Christians, not 21st century North Americans. And so when we learn that original background of the book, it gives it life that it's never had before. And I'm telling you, the book of Revelation will rock your world and it has nothing to do with credit card chips and World War III and the Middle East and all that stuff, but it has everything to do with how we follow Jesus in our daily lives. So hop on these resources and all of our resources at Disciple Dojo are free. And they're free to everyone everywhere in the world with an internet connection. But one of the reasons they're free is because we are a nonprofit organization. And this button right here at the top, this green button on the website, you click it and that's the donor page. And that actually takes you to where you can give a one-time gift to this ministry, which is tax deductible, or even better, you can become a monthly donor and earn your belt, so to speak, in our system. It starts at $10 a month. So for 10 bucks a month, you can support this ministry uh, and help us continue to offer this teaching that uh, people all over the world can have access to. So if you like the teaching at Ruth's, you enjoy this, and you want other people to have access to it, one of the biggest things you can do that really helps is to be a monthly donor. And again, you get it's all tax deductible. Our, our finance director sends you a statement at the end of the year when it's tax time, and um, it's all above board, but it really, really helps. It really helps. I can't emphasize that enough. Uh, <clears throat> we are finishing Joshua. This is the first time since we started this study. So we started this study six years ago, and this is the first time we've ever finished a book before we finish the year. This is the, every other book we've done. Genesis took a year and a half. Exodus took a year. Leviticus took a year. Numbers took a year. Deuteronomy took a year. So we usually finish a book around Christmas time. But Joshua is a shorter book, and this is the first time that we finished a book halfway through the year. So that's pretty cool. What's going to happen is we're going to finish out today, <clears throat> break for uh, July, and then in August we're going to come back and we're going to jump into Judges. And so Judges may span over the course of the new year. Uh, it'll depend on how far we get. But we're not in any hurry we're not trying to do the, let me read the Bible in a year. Like, no, we're not doing any of that. Like, we're just teaching through the Scriptures and walking through and, and building an online library that you can always come back to if you miss a chapter through the podcast and through our YouTube videos. So, let's finish out the last chapter of the book of Joshua. Chapter 24. 
This is, remember, this is many years after all the battles that Israel fought to enter the promised land. And they've settled. And they control the land militarily, but they do not control it culturally because they have allowed pockets of Canaanite uh, religious segments of the society to remain. And so part of the charge Joshua gave them in the last chapter was, hey, I'm old and about to die. you got to finish the job. You have to remove the Canaanite presence, the Canaanite religious presence from this land because that's what God kicked them out for. And that's the only reason you're in this land. And if you turn to them, if you turn to that religion, you become them. You become a Canaanite. You will be kicked out of this land as well. So Joshua was very insistent that the people finish what God has already blessed them with accomplishing in terms of the battles. Now, the day-to-day, um, the, the permeation, you've, you've, you've got to like leaven, seep throughout all the dough, go into all the land. And, and be salt and light in the land. So it's fitting that the book of Joshua ends with Joshua's version of Deuteronomy. The whole Torah ended with the book of Deuteronomy. And those of you that were here last year when we walked through Deuteronomy, all of Deuteronomy was structured according to an ancient Near East format of writing called a suzerain vassal treaty where a king would make a treaty with a vassal and it had stipulations and it had a historical introduction and it had a thing where witnesses would be called and it had all these parts. And that's how the Torah ended with Moses giving Deuteronomy, which was a covenant document. Now, that was before Israel was in the land. They were on the cusp of the land when Moses uh, entered that covenant or re-ratified the covenant. Now that they've gone into the land, They're going to reestablish and reaffirm this same covenant under Joshua in the land. So it's done. God's kept His promise. The people are in the land. The tribes have their inheritances. They are one people. This is literally probably the only time in history that you could genuinely say one nation under God. Because that's literally what they are. One nation together, 12 tribes. And they are literally a covenant relationship with God unlike anything that any other country or people have ever had in all of history. And so Joshua gathers them and it says, verse, chapter 24, verse 1, then Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. Now we just pass right over that because we don't care about Shechem or any of these other names. For those of you that have been with us these six years, you should know by now Shechem is a significant place in Old Testament history. Why? Genesis 12, the beginning of the Bible, the call of Abraham, when God said, go, leave your family, go to the place I'll show you. The beginning of the Abrahamic promise. Abraham left, he went, and he set up an altar at Shechem. It was the first place where Abram entered into the promised land. Shechem is like the point of entry from the north into Canaan. Not geographically, but it's like when you're in Shechem, you are now fully in the land of Canaan. And Shechem is where God and Abraham first made the the beginning of their relationship established in the land. And then you remember Jacob, Abraham's grandson, fled from the land, fled all the way up to Haran, up in northern what would today be Syria, and stayed there and said to God when he was leaving, hey, if you bring me back safely, then you'll be my God and I'll worship you. 
And so Jacob then, after years, God blessed him, multiplied him, made him a big family, changed his name to Israel, which means wrestles with God, struggles with God, not Jacob, which means crafty, take what doesn't belong to you. And he brought him back, and he brought him back, where did he go? Shechem. And it was at Shechem where Jacob told his family, God has brought us back to this land, just like he promised, put away your foreign gods. Because he and his three wives and their children had had foreign gods. They had had idols that they worshipped. And so it was at Shechem in Genesis 35 where Jacob had this ceremony of renouncing the faith from beyond the river Euphrates, the faith of of his ancestors, and saying, no, I will serve the faith of my grandfather and my father, the one true God, Yahweh. Everybody in my family put away your idols. And they buried them under an oak tree at Shechem. So Shechem is a place that's like the heartbeat of the patriarchs. And so that's where Joshua calls Israel together to affirm this covenant. Why? Because this is the culmination of everything that's been happening since Genesis 12. It's the fulfillment of everything going back to Genesis 12 that God promised with these people, Israel. It didn't start in Egypt. It didn't start at the Exodus. It didn't start at Mount Sinai. It started back at Shechem in Genesis chapter 12. And so it's fitting. It's such a beautiful bookend to you had the Pentateuch, the first five books, and then Joshua is kind of like the last chapter closing out this section of Israel's history before they enter the period of the Judges. And so Joshua called the tribes assembled at Shechem. He summoned the elders, leaders, judges, and officials of Israel, and they, rep- and they presented themselves before God. Then Joshua said to all the people, this is what the Lord God of Israel says. Now here's the historical prologue of the covenant. This is, remember, this is formatted like a covenant document. So everything through verse 13 is going to be the historical prologue. This is perfectly normal in a covenant ceremony. The person making the covenant would say, friends, this is why we're here. And they would give a historical account of the things leading up to the covenant that they're about to make. It would be like if I did a wedding and I brought the bride and groom together and said, let me tell you the story of how these two met. And then we recounted the relationship and walked through the courtship and the engagement. And then now we come today to enter into the marriage. That's what this is like. So he says, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, long ago, your forefathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the river. It's the Euphrates River up north and worshiped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the river and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many seed, descendants. The word seed, offspring. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. I assigned the hill country of Seir to Esau. That's down in the land of Edom that they had come out of. But Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt. That was because of the famine. He's recounting the things that happened in the mid to last chapters of Genesis. Now we get to Exodus, verse 5. Then I sent Moses and Aaron. I afflicted the Egyptians by what I did there, and I brought you out. When I brought your fathers out of Egypt, you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued them with chariots and horsemen as far as the Red Sea. This is Exodus 14. But they cried out to the Lord God for help, and He put darkness between you and the Egyptians, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. He brought the sea over them and covered them. You saw with your own eyes what I did to the Egyptians. Then you lived in the desert for a long time, 40 years. 
because of their disobedience. This is all in the book of Numbers, if you were there for that. Verse 8, I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived east of the Jordan. It's King Og of Bashan um, and King Sihon, of, of all the kings that we've read about in Numbers, that battle, Balaam, and all that stuff. Uh, I brought you, they fought against you, but I gave them into your hands. I destroyed them from before you, and you took possession of their land. When Balak, son of Zippor, the king of Moab, prepared to fight against Israel, he sent for Balaam, son of Beor, to put a curse on you. But I would not listen to Balaam, so he blessed you exceedingly. NIV says he blessed you again and again. It's a loose translation. The Hebrew literally says he absolutely blessed you. So he meant, to, and that's part of the Numbers saga. Balaam meant to curse Israel. King Balak meant him to curse Israel, paid him to curse Israel. And instead, he said, I can only say what God says because I'm a prophet, which is true. And he could only bless Israel. And he blessed Israel. This is in the book of Numbers. And he blessed Israel with the highest blessing probably in all of biblical history. If you read, go back and check the video or the podcast when we went through Numbers and Balaam's blessing. It was like Israel raised above all the nations. It was the greatest blessing spoken over Israel in the entire Bible, arguably, by a pagan prophet. God does stuff like that all the time. So, <clears throat> verse 11. Then you crossed the Jordan and you came to Jericho. This is what we've been in this year. The citizens of Jericho fought against you, as did also the Amorites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hittites, Girgashites, Hivites, and Jebusites. But I gave them into your hands. I sent the hornet ahead of you, which drove them out before you. Now, this phrase, the hornet, um, <clears throat> scholars don't really know what to do with this, so there's about three options that they say this represents. Some people have said the hornet being sent ahead is a reference to Egypt, and Egypt basically beating up and, and subduing all these countries long before, and then Israel coming along after and kind of hitting them when they're weak. Um, of all the options, that's the least plausible, but it's based on some it's based on very little evidence. It's just, you might hear it in a commentary. That's the only reason I mention it. I don't think it's plausible at all. The other option is, he actually, ancient Near East armies would use insects in warfare sometimes. And so they would actually release hornets. You ever hit a hornet's nest? Right? Okay, we're in Charlotte. We're in Charlotte. What's our NBA mascot? The hornets. Why? Why is that their name? I just learned this recently. Charlotte's was called the Hornet's Nest by it was General Cornwallis, right? During the Revolution. When they tried to take Charlotte, he said it's a, it's a Hornet's Nest of Rebellion. Right? So Charlotte was known as like, you don't go... So some have said like Hornets are terrible and so armies would like take Hornet's Nest, catapult those into a city. That'll create some panic or at least some discomfort or confusion. So some scholars have said that, that they actually look... That God, like he'd used locusts and other animals that God used the horn, literal hornets to drive out the Canaanites. The problem with that is that's never mentioned in any of the battle accounts. The last option, and I think it's the one that's correct, although maybe some might argue differently, but it doesn't matter, um, is that the phrase the hornet, is a, it's a metaphor, just like it was in Charlotte <laughs> during the Revolutionary times. But in the biblical terms, it means panic. It means a fear. It means a dread. And that's what God did say. I will, put, I will send my dread. I will send terror. I will send fear ahead of you. So when they got to Jericho, what did Rahab say? Our hearts are melted because we've heard of all the things that God has done. 
and the different Canaanites in the southern uh, campaign that we read about, and then in the northern campaign, every time they'd go, there would be this, it was like this terror, this panic that preceded Israel. And so most biblical scholars, that's the option that they say that's what this refers to. That phrase, I will send the hornet ahead of you, is God saying, I'm doing the terrifying. I'm doing the panicking. I'm going to cause, uh, throw them into confusion, throw them into panic, so that when you come in, the battle is pretty much already won. And, and that's basically the point of it. So Charlotte, that's just kind of a cool Bible verse if you're a Hornets fan. Uh, you can <laughs> throw that one out sometime. Um, but anyway, he says, he's recounting, I sent the hornet ahead of you, which drove them out before you. Also the two Amorite kings, and that's of King Og and King Sihon that we've read about on the west side of the Jordan, on the east side rather. Here's the key though. You did not do it with your own sword and bow. I sent the hornet ahead of you. I sent the terror ahead of you. I fought your battles. Did they use the swords? Yes. Did they use bows? Yes. Were they a conventional army? Yes. But God's reminding them, but those aren't the reason that you're in this land now. Your strength and your might, which is the sword and the bow, short distance combat, sword, long distance combat, the bow, that's not why you're in this land. You're in this land because I brought you in and I sent my terror ahead of you. I fought your battle as your king. I'm the great suzerain. I've liberated you. You are my faithful vassal, which is what kings would do in the ancient Near East. So I gave you a land on which you did not toil and cities that you did not build and you live in them and eat from vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. I gave you this as my judgment on the Canaanites on the flip side was my blessing for you. All in my timing. So, here's the key. Now comes the stipulations. This is the next part of a covenant document. The stipulations. Now, fear the Lord and serve Him with all faithfulness. Serve Him in truth is what it says literally in Hebrew. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. That word serve also means worship. Put away all other gods. You will have no other gods before me. This implies that even these 20-something years after the battles, there were still elements of idolatry among Israel. There were still Israelites that clung to the gods of Egypt or the gods of the forefathers across the river. Idolatry is so pernicious and it's so hard to root out because everybody, it's not like they're rebelling against God, but they just want God and something else. And that's the danger of idolatry. In churches today, idolatrous teaching doesn't come in the form of, hey, deny Jesus and come follow this God. It doesn't, that doesn't, you never hear that. Idolatry today in churches, just like it was in Israel's time, is, hey, Jesus is great. God is great. Amen. Yes, I love God. I fear God. Worship Him. Let's also add a fear and a reverence for fill in the blank with whatever, anything beyond God and Jesus that people add, that's the idolatrous factor. So it's not God and anything. Even things that are good, God and country. No, just God. Just God. Everything else falls off the list in comparison. God and family. No, 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 no. Don't make an idol out of the family. God first, family and country and all that stuff will take care of itself as you follow God. Not God and. That's the temptation that we have, especially in our melting pot culture. 
theological melting pot. I love Jesus, but I'm also spiritual, so I have, you know, I, I, I do Buddhist meditation as well. You know, I love Jesus, but I also still do my prayer facing east every day. I love Jesus, but I also check my horoscope. I love Jesus, but also wear this crystal because it has vibrations and whatever. Jesus and, Jesus and. And so what Joshua's calling God's people to do in the Old Covenant is exactly what Paul and the other apostles and Jesus himself would call them to do in the New Covenant, which is no other gods before me, me and me alone. Jesus had the audacity to claim that. And he's calling them, Joshua says, verse 15, if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve whether the gods of your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are now living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. This is the, this is the most famous verse in all of Joshua. Most people that don't know anything about Joshua at least know this verse. But this is a huge statement he's making. He is giving the people an out. He's saying if you're not going to serve God, this is the point of no return. So the covenant now... This is, a, this, is, this is the, if anyone has any reason why this man and woman should not be wed, let them speak now and forever hold their peace. That's what this is right now in, in theological speak. So he's saying, this is the moment. Choose. You want to serve the Canaanite gods? You've seen the fate of the Canaanites. You want to serve the gods that we used to serve generations ago beyond the river? You've seen what God brought us out of. You want to serve the gods of Egypt? You've seen what he did to them in the Exodus. Choose to serve God. And the choice is put before them. Now, this is where people's theology gets played with. Because there's some churches, they don't like anything about choice. No, God chose. Sovereign. Predestined. God does the choosing. Well, this verse would be meaningless if that's truly the case across the board. But rather, what we see is what we've seen in the Old Testament all along. God already chose Israel. They are His chosen people. He chose the people of Israel collectively. But every generation and every Israelite has to, in return, choose to remain part of that chosenness. And this is where people's theology gets a little messed up. But too bad. The Bible trumps theology. And so we have to let it say what it says. God chose us, but we have to choose Him back. And some people think, oh, it's getting into works righteousness. Not at all. Not at all. It's accepting a free gift that's been given. And there's no work involved in that. It's just an ascent and a turning of your heart. And if that's a work, then words lose all meaning. But that's always been the, the way it is with biblical salvation, Old Testament and New Testament. So it cuts through the whole Arminian-Calvinist debate. Like, no, Israel didn't just one day go, we're going to choose to worship God. They didn't do that. God had to sovereignly bring them out of Egypt. God saved them prior to giving them the law. But as a response to God's saving grace, they have to, in order to maintain and, and remain God's people, they have to choose to follow. So salvation is, is both ways. So that cuts against the Calvinist concept that God does all the choosing and the sanctifying and the saving and this and this and this. And you'll hear preachers kind of preach both of those, what I would say are unbalanced in light of what Scripture teaches. God's sovereignty and our responsibility do not conflict with each other. We may not know exactly how to work it all out in the details, but we do know that the details are... Otherwise, this statement is meaningless. If God says, choose this day, 
they really can't choose because I've predestined them to either go to hell or go to heaven. It's not like that. It's choose. He gives them a choice. It's legitimate. So we don't want to mitigate that. But they've already been chosen as a people, corporately, for salvation. So that's the corporate view of election. But we don't have time because we've got to wrap it up. So, <clears throat> verse 16, Then the people answered, so Joshua says, serve the other gods if you want to, but me and my house are going to serve uh, Yahweh. Then the people answered, far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It was the Lord our God Himself who brought us and our fathers up out of Egypt from that land of slavery and performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among all the nations through which we traveled. And the Lord drove out before us all nations, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We too will serve the Lord because He is our God. Joshua responds, and this is a little Middle Eastern back and forth. If you've ever bartered in a Jerusalem market, you, this makes a little more sense. Joshua responded to the, said to the people, you're not able to serve the Lord. He's a holy God. He's a jealous God. He'll not forgive your rebellion or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, He will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after He's been good to you. And that make an end of means literally destroy and so the people then, in response, so it's kind of like Joshua's like, you can't do it. We'll reverse psychology here. The people say, but the people said, Joshua, verse 21, no, we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said, 22, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen to serve the Lord. So he's saying, all right, you've said it. You are witnesses. Everybody's hearing this. We're all here in Shechem where our ancient idols are buried, where you're putting away your foreign gods, where we're declaring allegiance to God Himself. Everybody's in on this. Everybody's hearing it. And the people says, yes, we are witnesses. And that's what would happen in ancient Near East Covenant ceremony. There would be witnesses that would witness the agreement. So then, verse 23, Joshua, now then, Joshua said, throw away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God and obey Him. So on that day, Joshua cut a covenant. And he says made a covenant, but it's cut. A cut a covenant because you would cut an animal and you would cook it and you would sacrifice and you would eat it and there would be a meal. It's literally where the phrase cut a deal comes from. You would cut a covenant. And Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law of God. Then he took a large stone and he set it up under the oak near the holy place of the Lord. The same oak where Jacob had buried the idols before in Genesis chapter 35, verse 4, if you want to check that reference. Verse 27, he said, look to all the people, this stone will be a witness against us. It has heard all the words the Lord has said to us. It will be a witness against you if you are untrue to your God. So a memorial marker signifying the deal, the covenant. Verse 28, Then Joshua sent the people away, each to his own inheritance. After these things, Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnath Sarah in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gosh. This is the first time. Remember how Joshua opened? The book of Joshua opened with uh, Joshua, son of Nun. Moses, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord. This is the first time now, the entire book, that Joshua gets that title, servant of the Lord. Eved Yahweh. Joshua is now 
completed what Moses began and has earned the right to be named the servant of the Lord, the same as Moses was. And he dies at 110, same age that Joseph was when he died in Egypt. Um, They buried him. Verse 31, Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and the elders who outlived him and who had experienced everything the Lord had done for Israel. And Joseph's bones, which the Israelites had brought up from Egypt, were buried at Shechem in the tract of land that Jacob had bought for a hundred pieces of silver from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. This became the inheritance of Joseph's descendants. And Eliezer, son of Aaron, died and was buried at Gibeah, which had been allotted to his son Phinehas in the hill country of Ephraim. So Joshua dies. Joseph's bones that were brought up out of Egypt have finally reached their resting place in the very spot where God promised to Abraham to give him the land. And then Aaron's son, Eliezer, the high priest, dies as well. So this closes out everything that's all of, all of the Pentateuch, all of the Torah, it brings it to an end. And it's a very idyllic end. This is one of the few Old Testament books that has such a happy ending. It seems like, man, this was really good. Things ended well. It's smooth sailing from here on. There are two things to keep in mind as we close. Two things. Number one, Joshua never named a successor. He didn't, there wasn't a, what Joshua was for Moses, there wasn't one for Joshua. Because now the people are in the land. So who's Joshua's successor? God. God is to be the ruler. And the people are to serve God. Eliezer's successor is going to be Phinehas and the high priest and the line of the priesthood. That will continue. But there's no more need for a military conqueror. And there's certainly no need for a king yet. Because God is going to be the ruler. The second little point that's a little ominous is it says, verse 31, Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and the elders who outlived him, who had experienced everything the Lord had done for Israel. But when they die, and literally that's what the next book, Judges, is going to start with, after that generation died, a new generation arose who did not know the Lord and the things He had done. And we see in the book of Judges how that's going to go. I'll give you a hint. It's not going to go well. (laughs) The book of Judges. So Joshua is like the high point in the Old Testament. One of the high points of the Old Testament. Arguably the high point. The ending of Joshua. Judges is like a plummet off a cliff. It's a downward spiral of sin, rebellion, death. Sin, rebellion, death. Sin, rebellion, death. All the way to the end of the book of Judges, which it could not be more opposite than Joshua. The book of Judges will end with the lowest and darkest ending of all the Old Testament books. So that's where we're headed. (laughs) Enjoy that. Um, Just a preview of things to come. But, But for right now, the covenant is made. They entered into this agreement. They are God's people in God's land. Everything God had promised to Abraham, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, it's all finally happened. Now God's light can shine forth to the nations. The nations can stream to knowledge of God. Things can happen if and only if the people walk in obedience to the covenant they made. That's the question that the rest of the Old Testament is going to wrestle with. Every prophet that comes after is going to say, hey guys, turn back. Turn back to the covenant. Turn back to the promise God made. Be God's people. Let Him be your God. And Israel's going to battle with that for the entirety of their history. Idols are going to crop up. The idolatrous nature of Israel is going to rear its head every generation. And so we're going to get to a point where there's going to need to be a real battle fought, not against Canaanites, 
but against the spiritual forces that animate all of sinful humanity. And that real battle is going to need to be fought on a spiritual level, not a physical geographical plane. And guess who's going to fight it? A guy named Joshua. We know him as Jesus because that's the Greek version. But that's who's going to ultimately fight the battle. So Joshua is a foreshadow of Joshua 2.0, which is Jesus uh, battling at a cosmic level, bringing his people into the promise of the kingdom rather than a specific geographical location. But that's way far in the future. That's like 1,000 years more than 1,500 years away. Um, so we got to go. Guys, it's been awesome, this study of Joshua. If you missed any of the weeks, you can always hop on the website, catch back up, uh, get ready for judges. We're going to hit the ground running in August. There may be a couple of uh, lead-in weeks, so i got to work that out. Um, we may do a few one-offs in August and start judges closer to September. But um, that is yet to be determined. So just show up in August with uh, hungry bellies and mind ready to learn. Other than that, have a great July. And by the way, my birthday's next Friday. So if you guys want to, um, you know, go to Disciple Dojo and support the ministry as a birthday present to me, that would be awesome. But you don't have to. Thank you for coming, and we'll see you in August. Take care.